Let's open our Bibles to Romans 6. Have you ever prayer slip or visitor slip? We'd love to collect those from you. We will certainly pray for you this week. How about the student choir? Yeah, so thankful for them and the hard work to lead that sacrifice of praise this morning. And I just uh, want to say to the student choir, we're grateful for you, for your generation, want to give opportunities for you to serve in, uh, in this body. And we pray the Lord would bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Thank you for this morning. Also, I wanna mention in your bulletin is your preaching card for the next three months. Uh, who, you know, Who's that supposed to impact? Well, it impacts me <laughs> uh, in a significant way. If I'm not championing this message, preaching's important, I doubt you're gonna hear it from anybody else. So what I'm wanting to say is preaching's important, preparing to come to church, ready to receive is important, and this preaching card is a way to say, okay, this is next, and begin reading the scripture and looking at that, and you see it through the end of the year. I'm excited in just a few moments that we'll leave the preached word and come and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. But for now, we're in Romans 6. Whose slave are you? Which seems to be Paul's message here. Sometimes I come across uh, and I'm reminded of quotes throughout Christian history that I want us to remember and cherish. And one comes to mind from Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century. He was martyred in AD 155, AD 155. He was bound and burned at the stake and then stabbed with the, the, uh, the fire when the fire failed to consume his body. When Polycarp was called to recant his faith, basically, reject Jesus Christ and you can live. Listen to what he said in the pressure of that moment. Eighty and six years. For eighty-six years have I served Christ and he has done me no wrong how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then I was reminded of David Livingstone, a noted missionary to Africa. He lived from 1813 to 1873. And he gave tribute to Jesus Christ at the close of his life. And Livingstone requested that while his body was buried in England, he wanted his heart buried in Africa because that's where he lived and moved and served. And it was. David Livingstone said at the end of his life of Jesus Christ, he's the greatest master I've ever known. If there's anyone greater, I don't know him. Jesus Christ is the only master supremely worth serving. He's the only ideal that never loses its inspiration. He's the only friend whose friendship meets every demand. He's the only savior who can save to the uttermost. We go forth in his name, in his power, and in his spirit to serve him. Notice those words. He's the greatest master I've ever known. The Livingstone understood that he was a slave for Jesus Christ. And this is the idea when we come to Romans 6. Understanding what it means to be a Christian brings us to the demands of discipleship, specifically what Jesus spoke of. If for anyone who would want to come after him, follow him. In Matthew 10, he said, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
The Apostle Paul used this imagery, identifying two types of slavery, one leading to endless bondage and destruction, and the other righteousness and life. So this new life in Christ requires that we live with the awareness that you're not your own, friends. In Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. And this seems to be the message we find in Romans 6. And so I'd like to begin first by noting our redemption in Christ is never a license to sin. And speaking of the free grace of God, our justification by faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ, is never a license to, okay, go do what you want. He says in verse 1 of this chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, God forbid. And then in verse 15, he says again basically the same thing. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. It was the law that led us as a schoolmaster, a tutor to faith in Jesus Christ. The law never cleansed anyone. It only declared that we are guilty in need of a savior. But it's meaningful for us to know the mind of God and the righteousness of God and to to see what obedience truly is. So the law has its purpose, but not in regard to forgiveness and salvation. It will never save. No one is saved by the keeping of of the law. So one of the hardest teachings in the Bible to communicate is this message of grace. It's difficult because we live in a world of merit-based salvation and the shame that comes with it you don't measure up and some people live their entire life trying to measure up a world that says that you've got to earn everything you get you want forgiveness you better get yourself in shape if you want his salvation you would better clean up yourself first you want God's favor you would better do something that would make you worthy and you can try a lifetime and it will never make you worthy. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Think of all the encounters of Jesus in the gospels. I think of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Um, She had had a handful of husbands and the guy she was living with was not her husband and Jesus puts his finger on that problem and she, he reveals his messiahship to her on that day. And she goes back into the village after receiving the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And she says, I love this statement. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. And then I think of the woman taken into adultery, cast at the feet of Jesus. He says to her, go and sin no more. Or blind Bartimaeus, who received his sight from Jesus Christ spiritually and physically. And after preaching, on, after preaching on this grace of God, there may be a temptation to say, isn't it kind of risky to preach that we're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ? Isn't that kind of risky? In, in studying grace in the Bible, grace produces within us a desire to live a life that pleases the Lord. Grace is not a license to sin, May it never be, but it should fuel a heart that wants to honor the Lord for the great things he's done for us. 
God, grace creates within us a new heart that is set free to obey God and to live for his glory. And that becomes our motivation. Grace brings about soul satisfaction in the treasure of who God himself is. And so in 1 John 2, an interesting side reference, John writes, and by this we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. That's interesting. Here's how you can know, here's a biblical assurance that you know the Lord in a saving way is that you have a longing to keep his commandments. You obey his commandments. The one who, the one who says, I know him, but disobeys what he says is a liar and the truth is not in him. Perhaps one of the reasons that sin is taken so lightly and that there's so little brokenness among God's people is that this truth is not taught in the church. Instead, people are taught that your assurance of salvation has no relationship to whether you obey God or not. We're taught that saving faith is such a weak and powerless thing that it cannot guarantee any changes in life in many sectors. This is proclaimed freely. And therefore, to look for those changes as the evidence of saving faith is misguided. No, we're commanded to examine ourselves, to look at our hearts and to, and to be honest before God's word in confessing our sins. In just a few, few moments, we're gonna come to the Lord's table, which calls us to remember and to repent and to return. And we just minimize the impact of sin in our life. I, I thought of two quotes, one by John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He once said that the best prayer he ever prayed had enough sin in it to damn the whole world. That's a little over the top, isn't it, Mr. Bunyan? I don't know. You ever been praying and your mind wander and you wonder, what am I doing in that pasture? Why are my thoughts over there? The hymn writer knew what he was talking about when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How can I be on my knees and my, my thoughts wander to things that are reprehensible to him? What's the only hope I ever have of being received by him? Not my own righteousness. It's grace. Grace, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Even our best efforts are nothing more than filthy rags, Isaiah wrote. There are people who think they're religious, that they're righteous just because they're good people. And we know how that's used in our culture. They're good people over there. Um, we, we hear that expression, they're, they're, he's a good neighbor, and we know what that means. We don't want to be so, um, you know, obtuse that we don't understand those expressions. They mean they're a reliable neighbor who will help me do anything I need to do, and that's, that's a blessing from God. But any human goodness is not going to commend yourself to God to be received by him. Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy people and the one, one of the primary ways that he does this is through the lie that my own righteousness will be sufficient to take me where I need to go. In plain terms, we need a righteousness that can, only God can supply and that's where we find it in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Notice secondly, as we dig into the passage at hand, secondly, we're slaves to, to one of two masters. Here we come to this theme in the Bible. There's only two ways. There's only two paths. 
And that's a major pushback from this world where it views there are many ways to God, there are many ways to forge through what you think is right. Here Paul says we are slaves to one of two masters and he says so in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So one leads to destruction and the other leads to God's presence through the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. So no human is free. We're not free to do uh, everything that we want to do. There is one being in the universe who's totally free. Who's that? God himself. So all others are limited by or enslaved by someone or something. The only meaningful question is, is this, are you, uh, who or what are you serving? And that's his point here in this passage. Who or what are you serving? I remember uh, in my reading this week, uh, reading about a pastor, Ray Stedman, who pastored in California for many years. And he was walking down the street in Los Angeles one day and seeing a man coming, he had a sign, uh, one in the front and one in the back, Uh, perhaps you're familiar with what I'm talking about. The front sign said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And after he passed by, Stedman turned and looked at at the back and the sign on his back read, whose slave are you? That's exactly the point of this passage. Since you and I are human beings and not God, we can never be totally autonomous. We, we must either be slaves to sin or slaves to Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't like those categories. I'm, I'm really just forced to go there though. Whose slave are you? And for us to see that there's no greater thing in this world than to be a slave for Jesus Christ. Totally submitted to him. Unashamed in our allegiance to him. A life pleasing to God is a life that by example, by word, by deed, demonstrates the righteousness of Christ. That's the Christian life. Obedience is the very essence of believing. It's the expression of true faith. Because it's possible to say, yes, I know him, and not know him. Well, where do you get that? Well, Matthew 7. One of the most sober statements from Jesus is Matthew 7, where he says, on that day, many will say to me, on what day? On the day of reckoning, on the day of judgment. On that day, many will say to me, uh, we did know you. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And what did Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I, I never knew you. So I think one of the dangers of living at this time in this culture that has had a Christian witness from the very beginning is to think that somehow I know him when I don't know him. I have a loose affiliation with the church, but as far as a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, evidenced by a changed heart, evidenced by a changed life, I think it's healthy to say, you know, I may be in danger of that. To be honest, Michael said that from the Baptist, baptistry this morning. I thought I was a Christian, thought I was a Christian, but I knew something wasn't right. Baptized at a younger age, lived for myself, 
In my pride, he said, push this off for what obedience looks like in my life. Turn with me to John 8. In, in looking at this idea of slavery, we, we're slaves to one of two masters. And John 8 is a passage where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he is having a conversation with the religious leaders and they, and they expressed, uh, you know, maybe a, a light openness to follow him and that quickly closed. When he said in verses uh, 31, in verse 31, if you abide in my word, John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now he's saying this to the religious establishment and they were absolutely furious to hear this. Abide in your word. And then Jesus went on to say, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they respond in rage. I love the King James. We be Abraham's seed. We come from Abraham. We've never been under bondage to anyone. Are you, you've got to be kidding. What about the whole Egyptian 400 years? What about that slave? Oh yeah, except for that. And what about your present situation that right now you're under the Romans in bondage? And worse still, Jesus puts his finger on the problem. Your sin has you in bondage. He challenged them on a spiritual level. In verses 34, and, uh, he says to them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then in verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be, you'll be free indeed. What's the takeaway? Well, sin is a slavery that holds you in bondage, that blinds your eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. It can also be a great deception in the believer's life, which is why we need to be challenged on who we serve. Sin is a slavery, but to be a slave of Jesus Christ is true freedom. To know him, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free through the power of Jesus Christ. We have, to, we have the power to live in such a way as not to sin and to pursue righteousness through the power that lives within us. Notice with me thirdly, as we move on in the text, being a slave to Christ means presenting our bodies to him for how long? For life. Being a slave to Jesus Christ means presenting our bodies to him for life. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have been, become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So he mentioned several things I want to highlight here. One is gratitude. Thanks be to God. The other is obedience. In that same verse... You were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient. The mark of your life and mine should be an ongoing process of learning to love and obey the Lord. Not to view salvation as some fire insurance to get you out of a bind later. But an ongoing, abiding, obedient relationship with Christ. This church exists to make that known that you might grow strong in him. So gratitude, obedience, walking in the truth, all of these should be a part of the Christian life. 
Thomas Schreiner said, from this we can conclude that Romans 6 teaches that believers are not free from the presence of sin, but they are free from its power, its tyranny, its mastery, and its dominion. So maybe you're caught in something this morning and you're wondering, I mean, I'm in bondage to this. It's eating my lunch, whether it's food, whether it's pornography, whether it's some gripping sin, maybe something that has convicted you that you know is not right, maybe some sin of of your speech, and you wonder, is there power for me? Is there hope for me? Is there help for me? And I want to encourage you that this is the message of what it means to know Jesus Christ, that there is, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I think another problem surfaces here. Well, what if I don't desire it? What if I don't desire this? What do I do? Ever feel that way as a believer? I think that comes in seasons, but learning to deal with a heart that doesn't desire God? What do do we do? I think we get really honest and we say, Lord, would you forgive my frigid heart would you forgive my frigid and cold heart and would you stir would you stir my heart to long for you and Lord would you help me to move forward in obedience and may I look up and may I show up and may I grow up until I'm doing what I need to be doing that's the Christian life Don't allow a low ebb, whatever it may be, losses in regard to temptation to sin or just being distracted by other things, come back to base camp and call out to him. Gratitude and obedience, becoming obedient from the heart. I think of the whole issue of giving, and you know we don't have a hard sell on that. It's amazing how God has met the needs of this ministry through the tithes and offerings of this church. But think of the pull on money on so many, so many lives. And think of how giving causes us and challenges us to loosen the grip on things that we think are ours in order to give and invest in the kingdom of God. Continuing in obedience. And so... We've been set free. Look at verse 18. Having been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. So as we come to the close of this message this morning, that we would see ourselves not as slaves to sin, but through the power of the gospel, we're slaves of righteousness. And what should that produce within us? That we leave here today with a desire to practice love and good deeds for the glory of our Savior. That we're pursuing righteousness and what is right as God's word has given to us with our mind and our heart and our eyes and our ears and our tongue and our feet and our hands and that we're giving them to him and using them in how we live before him. It's living with purpose and with hope. There's a great assurance in obeying the Lord, isn't there? You know that thrill you get as a believer? where you sense God's pleasure on your life when you're doing these things and you're obeying him? Is he the center? Is he the motivation of why you do what you do? 
Nothing can bring that to the forefront like a, a brush with death. I had uh, a, just a moving conversation this week with a friend uh, here in Ascension that I've known uh, for 15 years. And he was diagnosed with stage three melanoma. A mole just took off on his thigh and one thing led to another. And they're rushing to get that thing cut out and analyzed. And the short of it is it spread into a lymph node. And I talked, visited with him yesterday and I was just so taken how this trial has driven him even more so to his relationship with Jesus Christ and how he gave a witness in the throes of that. He is my Lord, he is my King, he is my master, he is my hope and stay. It calls for perseverance. Endurance, we're to run this race with, we're talking about sanctification, not justification. We're talking, about saying, we're talking about living out the Christian life. We're talking about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're presenting ourselves to him as slaves of righteousness, this text says. Which means it's for life. As long as we draw breath, we're to seek glory, the glory of our Savior. I read about a man who lived in the 1200s. I'd never heard of him before, but I read this week of... Uh, Raymond Lull, L-U-L-L. And he was born in a wealthy family on the Isle of uh, Majorca off the coast of Spain in 1235. His life as a youth was aimless and without resolution. And um, through a series of events, he was brought face to face with the claims of Jesus Christ. He thought that, like many in that day, I need to move into a monastery and live a monastic life but soon um, that grew thin. He became a missionary to the Muslim countries in Northern Africa. He learned Arabic and after returning from Africa became a professor of Arabic until he was 79. So we might say, well, now it's time for you to coast and enter into a well-deserved retirement that's later than most. Samuel Zwimmer describes the end of Raymond Lull's life like this. His students and friends naturally desired that he should end his days in peace. Such, however, was not Lull's wish. In Lull's contemplations, we read, men are known to die, O Lord. From old age, the failure of natural warmth and excess of cold, but thus, if it be thy will, your servant would not wish to die. He would prefer to die in the glow of love even as you were willing to die for him. So he's praying for a martyr's death at the age of 79. The dangers and difficulties that made Lull shrink back in, earlier in his life only urged him forward to North Africa once more in 1314. His love had not grown cold, but burned the brighter. He longed not only for the martyr's crown, but also once more to see the, the little band of believers that he had cultivated in Africa to see them once more. Animated by these sentiments, he crossed over to Algeria on August 14th and for nearly a whole year, he labored secretly among a little circle of converts whom on his previous visits, he had won over to the Christian faith. At length, 
weary of seclusion and longing for martyrdom, he came forth into the open market one day and presented himself to the people as the same man who they had once expelled from their town. It was Elijah showing himself to a mob of Ahab's. Lull stood before them and threatened them with divine wrath if they still persisted in their errors. He pleaded with love. He spoke plainly the whole truth. The consequences can be easily anticipated, filled with fanatical fury at his boldness and unable to reply to his arguments. The populace seized him and dragged him out of the town. There by the command or at least the approval of the king, he was stoned. On the 30th of June, 1315. So Raymond Lull was 80 years old when he gave his life for the Muslims of North Africa, presenting himself to Christ as a slave of righteousness and proving that what is excellent unto him, nothing could be further from the American dream of retirement than the way Lull lived out his last days. I could see, I could hear the pushback on this. He doesn't sound like he's sane. He doesn't sound like he's got it all together. Going into an open place and preaching the gospel, I I think it mirrors what Paul did. I think the one, the odd man out here is us. Becoming far too comfortable with allowing truth to be slain in the streets. I think we need to recover missionary biographies like this to, to be reminded of how God's people have led in the past and that it would fuel an increased boldness in the way we live to present our members to him for life, slaves of righteousness. Notice with me fourthly, learning to walk in obedience leading to sanctification. This is that aspect of salvation once we are united in Christ by faith that we begin to live in such a way through the work of God and through our own cooperation with it to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 16, do you not know that if you, pre- if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're the slave of the one you follow? Paul contends that grace inevitably involves a change of masters. Who's your master today? I don't like that nomenclature, preacher. I don't, I don't want to be anybody's slave. Well, how do, you, how do you deal with Romans 6 when that's what the call is? To be completely given over in allegiance to Jesus Christ. And if you don't serve him, you serve some other master And Paul just simplifies it. Anything else is sin. So serve him with all your heart, with all of your heart. This is sanctification, growing in the likeness of Christ, maturing as a Christian, developing doctrinal foundations for what you believe. We need that more than ever. I I was disturbed uh, this week in reading Christianity Today. I'm often disturbed when I read Christianity Today. But they, they, they had an article on the five top heresies that even, uh, among evangelical believers. Uh, the Bible's not literally true. That's, that's one of them. The Bible, like all other sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. 26% of evangelicals believe that, according to the survey. Jesus isn't the only way to God, is another one. 
Jesus was created by God. This is church people, many church people believing this. A surprising 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. He was not, friends. He's the eternal co-equal son of God, the second member of the Trinity. There was never a time he was not. He wasn't created. That's what sets us apart from the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. That Jesus is the eternal son of God, God in the flesh. That the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. That humans aren't sinful by nature. And so people are adrift, believing what, whatever they want to believe. But a commitment to our sanctification is presenting ourselves to the Lord as slaves of righteousness to work in our lives that we might be conformed into his image and that bears with it fruit. One of the great deceptions of the evil one is for you to think that somehow a surrendered life to Christ is a wasted life. That it's a boring life. It's a life to be pitied by people who can't cut it in some other sector of society. So they default to religion and God help them. But that's not the picture at all, is it? Not in the scripture and not for those who've walked with him for any time at all. I'm reminded of the words of Jim Elliot who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the key is to see that God is conforming me into the image of his son that one day I'm going to be in his very presence. And if I have no interest in this life of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, I'm gonna be really out of sorts in his presence in heaven. Learning to love the Lord, learning to serve the Lord, learning to deny ourselves, learning to take up our cross and to follow him. This is sanctification. And it should be our joy, far from being ripped off, we find in Jesus Christ the greatest news, the greatest treasure we could ever receive. And it really calls upon us to act on it right now. Which I think is a great segue to the Lord's table. I would ask the deacons to come and join me here at the front. And as we think about taking the bread and the cup, I just am reminded this morning again, this is one of those worship services where we have the opportunity to observe both ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. We began with, a, with baptism as tomorrow and Michael, Professor Faith in Jesus Christ, a beautiful picture. Baptism comes on the front end of our Christian life. When we believe and trust in him, Christ commands us to be baptized, not to evaluate whether we think it's reasonable or not. It really is a first act of obedience, which is why we often emphasize at the Lord's table that if you've been baptized, if you're a believer and have been baptized, you're welcome to come. This is, this is a meal for believers, for believers who've obeyed the Lord in baptism. And so if you've not followed through with that, I would urge you in integrity to allow the plate to pass today and to come to terms with what this really means. In Matthew 26, on the eve of him being arrested and ultimately crucified, where he died a substitutionary death for our sins, 
he inaugurated this Lord's Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How do you and I come to know forgiveness of sins? It's through the covenant that Jesus Christ, this new covenant. There's no forgiveness given in this world apart from this new covenant. It was established in his blood. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a future reunion for the believers in Christ. So this meal is about remembering when you, in just a moment, when you take the cup and the bread and you taste of the bread, you would remember his complete obedience. You would remember how he kept the law of God perfectly, something none of us can, can boast of. And when you drink of, of the cup, you remember his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And that this meal would be a time of remembering and a time of repenting and a time of retelling what God has done for us. I would remind you again of all the messages and agendas that you could give your heart to of all the pursuits and ambitions you could work for, of all the people you could follow and be devoted to, of all the possessions you could seek to accumulate, they all pale in comparison to knowing him. Knowing him is the greatest treasure you can ever know. I remind you of David Livingstone he is the greatest master I've ever known. If there's anyone greater, I don't know him, and I don't either. He's faithful to the end, and to him we look. Would you bow with me in prayer? In these uh, moments of just being still in his presence, take this time to confess your sins to him, to examine your heart before him. Allow this meal to be a reminder that would Stir your heart to give praise for his goodness and long to obey him and to present yourselves to him as a slave for righteousness. Be reminded of the new beginnings he gives every single day. Great is his grace. May it prompt us to say with William Carey, expecting great things from God, attempting great things for God, ordering our life in such a way to make much of him. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the hope of eternal life. We join, join believers who through the centuries have remembered you and worshiped you through this meal. And we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup.
and the worship. May we see you in Jesus' name. Amen.